My name is Ed Akira, and I'm the producer of the short film documentary, A Film Called Blacks Can Swim. The aim of the film is to understand why a disproportionate amount of black people and ethnic minorities can't and don't swim. On my journey to find the truth, I have the pleasure of speaking with a musician and artist, someone who is no stranger to campaigning, a man who campaigned to raise the profile of the world's first black professional footballer, Arthur Wharton. He set up the Arthur Wharton Foundation and has linked history with an invitation from Usain Bolt. He unveiled the very first statue with Stevie Wonder in 2008. Mr. Sean Campbell, welcome to In the Deep End with Ed Akira. Hi Ed, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. It's a pleasure to have you on board. So, swimming, can you swim? Uh, yes, I can swim. Well, I was born uh, 1961, so in the 60s and the 70s, there's a, a very strong emphasis on, and, and there, is, there should be today as well, on the need to be able to swim. You know, because uh, it's one of those life lessons that everybody really needs. You never know when you're going to need that capacity to save your own life or someone else's. And so swimming was very much part of the school curriculum of the time. But I'm mixed race. Uh, you know, my father's black, he's from Barbados, uh, my mother's white. But I, I, I still can't float, you know, like my wife, who's white, it just floats away. And it seems to be that there's something in the bone density of black people that... Um, uh, is, is kind of against them when it comes to swimming. Swimming, the idea there's a lack of buoyancy or, or the lack of bit of the ability to be able to float. I mean, at least that's what I understand. Uh, but I know it's true today in the sense that my children, my grandchildren, and my wife, they can all float quite happily, but I can't. Because I asked the question, is it a cultural or physical thing? And most people say it's definitely a cultural thing. Physically, there isn't a difference. But the more and more I delve into this project, the more I hear about black people or people who have black in them saying that they can't float, including myself. Well, I mean, my understanding is that the bone density is different. It's a heavier bone density, and it's, it, uh, that's what I understand the case to be, and that's what I've always believed. But, uh, I mean, clearly there needs to be some research done on that. Uh, but it's also my experience that many of my black family and friends uh, don't or can't swim. And it, it's always been a mystery to me, and it's something I've always been aware of. You know, when we see uh, the Olympic Games or any kind of swimming contest, it's very, very rare you see black swimmers. Yep. You know, uh, anything to do with the water. So, And culturally, of course, I, I'm, I'm guessing that this goes all the way back to the days of slavery, um, the idea that there's a an innate fear of water because of the journeys that were taken by our ancestors and things like that. I mean, I'm sure there's an element of truth in that, um, but quite scientifically how that's shown, I really don't know. Um, you, know you, you touched on um, your, your Bayesian and English heritage. Um, do you see a difference in attitude in, about swimming between your, the black side of your family and your white side of your family? My, the white side of my family swim, as far as I'm aware and as far as I've experienced, you know, they're, they're all swimmers, they can swim. It's, it's just, I guess it's, it's, it, it almost feels like it's natural, and yet, uh, for, for black people, it just does not seem to be uh, that natural or in the forefront of something that needs to be done. 
think it's a very valuable thing that you're doing exploring this subject. It's something I've been aware of since a very young boy. I'm 57, 50, sorry, 58 years old now. But it's something that I've known and felt and pondered about all of my life, really. Yeah, and, and so, and so um, those that don't swim, those in your family that don't swim, what reasons do they give? Generally, it's, um, I don't like water. That's, that's the first thing you hear. Second thing is, um, I never got the chance. And I would say, of course you did, you were in the same class as me at school. <laughs> the same chance, the same opportunity. And yet, you know, uh, I took to swimming. Uh, I, it, it was something I really enjoyed doing, mainly because at the end of swimming, you got a packet of crisps, which tasted just so much nicer. It's a bit like eating fish and chips outside. And when you come from the kind of background I came from, where money was extremely sparse, I mean, sometimes, you know, you went through a whole school day without lunch because you couldn't afford it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm, it's not a sob story, it's just the truth. I had a very difficult upbringing in that sense, financially. Um, but uh, for me, it was always a case of, oh, good, we're going swimming. Those uh, Golden Wonder or Seabrook, Seabrook crisps afterwards are just going to taste sweet, you know. It was like that. But water, I always found quite enchanting in some kind of way. But for my black friends at school, it, it, it never had that uh, sense of uh, appeal at all. And it transcends down to today. I mean, we're still having this. We're still having these conversations today. An essential life skill that just cannot be underestimated. I mean, I think I saw in some of your research somewhere that uh, there's a quite a disproportionate number of black people die through drowning. Would that would that be right? Yeah, that's very very true. And well, since I started doing this project, a lot of people have come up to me and said, "Thank you very much for opening up a conversation that we've been dying to speak about." Very important. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, yeah, but yes, we, we will change the perception and I will keep on talking. If people want to stop hearing my voice, then they're going to have to start learning how to swim because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to stop anytime soon. Another, another reason a lot of people have mentioned to not learning how to swim is costs. What's your take on that?
young black children could fall into, I don't know, a river or, uh, or, or, or go for a paddle in the swim and be carried too far out. And yet and they're unable to make themselves back to shore. I mean, that is not a price worth not paying for the sake of, you know, three pound swimming lessons. If your parents are smoker, keep up the packet of fags for a day and that'll get you three swimming lessons. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In, in, other, in other words, it is so important to have that essential skill of being able to swim in order to preserve your own life or to protect, you know, what does it say about the parents if they can't jump in and protect their own children if they're drowning? Very How true. would they feel in that situation? There are very emotive ways in order to persuade people that they they do have a duty and responsibility. I mean, it wouldn't it be wonderful if the government or, or, or that some other powerful organisation could fund the idea that all children will learn to swim? I was speaking with a gentleman by the name of Craig Lord, who is um, uh, a writer for the Times. He's one of the editor, sport editor for the Times, and covers swimming. And he said he is trying to get the government to look at it as something that every school has a duty to make sure that the child can swim before they leave school. Right now, it's part of the curriculum. Um, it's part of the curriculum and they said that there's three points that the three things that have to happen one um, in, in uh, before a child leaves school at the age uh, at year six they have to be able to swim 25 meters they have to be able to perform a number of strokes and they might have to be able to perform a safety test and get themselves out of a, a, a sticky situation whilst in the water and right now, this, the, um, the statistic says that 75% of children are able to do this before leaving school. So 25% can't. But when it goes down to the deprived area, it goes from 75% to 42% that can do this. Wow. So, yeah, so there is something that needs to be done. There definitely has to be something has to be done. That's a high number. And, and is there evidence that shows that a large proportion of those numbers are people? Yes, they are. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. And and I've I've been I've been speaking to a number of teachers on the subject, and basically what they're saying is that before the child gets to school, starts at the um, starts school at the age of five, six, they should be learning. They should have learned how to swim. Because a lot of parents, what they do is that they they say, oh, the school gives swimming lessons, so we won't do anything. And then, in hope that the, the, the school true. teaches them. Children need to start learning to swim from the moment they're born, really. Yeah. Certainly yeah. from the age of two and three, there are lots of swimming lessons out there, where they get children confident with water. I mean, you know, I have five grandchildren, six of them on the way, and all of them, you know, regardless of um, cost or time, all of them went to early years swimming lessons simply because. The fear of them drowning and not being able to swim just fills me with dread. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So they've all been through, you know, at the age of three, started, or there or thereabouts, started to, or two, two and three years old, uh, learning to swim. Yeah, I think every parent should have a responsibility to make sure that's the case. So, um, the media, the governments, um, from a cultural diversity point of view, um, and it's very clear that black people and ethnic minorities are less less likely to swim. 
um, and as a result, more likely to drown. Do you think the media, the government, have any responsibility towards this? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Yes, I do. I'm not quite sure how you implement it, but I think the government, you know, really has a duty to make sure that all children who fall under the education system have an opportunity to learn to swim. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not quite sure how all of this would be implemented or anything like that. I haven't got any magic answers. But I feel that it is such an important life skill that it should be just part of who we are and what we do in life, you know, through our education and so forth. So that, that to me, yeah, it does come down to the government. Yeah, okay. Racism in sports. Um, <laughs> and as the founder of the Arthur Watson Foundation, set to recognise the first black professional footballer. What's your view on racism in sports? Because this happens in swimming as well. Well, the, the thing about racism is that, you know, we went through a very long period. Of, let, well, let's first of all, let's, let's see who Arthur Wharton is. Arthur Wharton was the world's first black professional footballer. He was also the world's first ever fastest man on the planet, running a, a world record and world record holder in 1886, 3rd of July, Stamford Bridge, London, Arthur Wharton ran the first 100-yard record in 10 seconds dead. He was also a professional cricketer, rugby player, and a cycling champion. And Arthur came from this wonderful place in Ghana called Jamestown, you know, a, a place of fisher folk, you know. And he came over here in 1883, joined Darlington Football Club, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, if we go back to that time, Ed, and we look at this Ghanaian who came over here to study as a Methodist preacher that found his way in sport, and we date back from, 90, from 1883 up to the point of where we are now, it is the perfect yardstick and the measuring sign for, uh, uh, for how far we have come or not in tackling this issue. What we found was that there was massive progress made eventually in, in football in particular in tackling racism in sport certainly certainly in this country through you know the highlighting of awareness of trailblazers like um, you know uh, the three degrees so Regis, Brendan Batson and Laurie Cunningham you know through the advent of people like uh, Viv Anderson who became the first international uh, black player to play for England Paul Canneville, the first black player to play for Chelsea. And Ed, you know, that was, that was 1983. It's not very long ago mm -hmm. that Chelsea had its first ever black player, is it? So you, so you see that we're only in the early days, really, of these clubs taking in black players. Yes, I can see there's quite a few black players playing now. But if we skip to today, right to today, and we look at Bulgaria recently, and we had a football association that followed the three-step protocol. I don't think there's anyone in England or across the globe who didn't respect and admire England for following that protocol. But what you have to then say is, okay, they did that, they showed their courtesy, they followed the three-step protocol, what is the outcome of that? Well, what do we see, Ed? I'll tell you what we see. We see a UEFA organization who instilled a fine of £64,000 and two game ban behind closed doors. Now, in all seriousness, that three-step protocol, although it was followed by the England players and the management team, 
they must be absolutely devastated to, to know that, that our FA are in a position where we subject our players to this kind of abuse and the authority that's meant to protect then goes on to, it, it is absolutely outrageous. So your next question would be, probably, well, what should we do about it then? Yep. Correct? Yeah, correct. So I would say, well, the answer, these small steps and these tiptoeing around organisation things isn't working. The courtesy of the FA, uh, rather our players and management teams, have followed the three-step protocol without any outrage or anything. You know, we, we have to say that there has to be a consequence for that good behaviour and that compliance and the neglect that was shown by UF in following out the punishment. So I would say the only way to deal with this is for the English FA to set out a very strong... Now, I've made my feelings known to the FA on this, so I'm not saying anything that I haven't said to them. My feeling is that the FA should threaten to withdraw from the Euro competition, regardless of the consequences, and that it would reverberate globally if we were to do that on the strength that, as an English FA, they would be negligent in allowing our, you know, football players, particularly our black players, to be subject to this kind of abuse in Europe, knowing that they are not being properly protected. It's going to take some kind of statement like that, Ed, in my view, to make people stand up and take note. Yeah. withdraw the team or threaten to withdraw withdraw the team from the competition Bulgaria weren't excluded remember so we should threaten to withdraw unless UEFA reassess the punishment that was given to Bulgaria increase the fine three or fourfold exclude them from the competition and the next competition so that Bulgaria have a very clear message and so will other countries until they get their house in order as a national affair, they are not welcome on the world stage where they can exhibit, you know, their racist tendencies through these appalling fans who, you, you know, the thing is that the, these players who experience that racism on the pitch, they have to live with that. They go to bed at night thinking about that. Yes. <laughs> It, it plays on their emotions. It plays on their em emotional and, and and mental, you know, well-being. Now, if we accept that that's the case, then the FA in England have to accept that unless we deal with that properly and protect them properly, then we are negligent. And I'm a fan of our FA in the sense that what we've done as an FA is to set the benchmark. We are the most progressive FA in the world, and we've done more than any any other FA or any governing body to tackle racism in football. We, we are still not there, Ed. We still make mistakes. We still have shortcomings. And I'm not saying everything's great with the FA. It certainly is not. But I'm saying, if they want to maintain that reputation and they want to continue to be the flag bearer of tackling racism, they need to make sure that they are the ones who lead through a demonstration of the kind that I've suggested which is to threaten to withdraw the team from the competition unless UEFA deal with these matters appropriately. That would make the world stand up. It would make UEFA stand up. It would make FIFA stand up. And it would make all the other countries understand 
that what the FA is doing today, in a sense as it's always done, is to take the lead role in tackling these issues. That's my thoughts on it. What, what was the um, Football Association's response to you when you suggested this? <clears throat> well, uh, this was done in con phone conversations. I mean, I have penned a letter which I intend to send to the FA. Outline. I wanted to make sure that we got these two recent games out of the way because now there's a time to reflect on this and there's an opportunity for the FA, if they wish, to pursue what I'm suggesting and to take that on board. I think it would be for the good of football, but that needs that needs real commitment on the behalf of our FA. You see, the thing is, Ed, by doing that, the FA are then bound by that to look at their own house here in England. You with me? Yeah. Oh, so definitely. stepping up, you know, a global campaign by such a threat, it, it automatically creates a kind of a refocus with the Football Association. I mean, lest we forget, every single England player from the junior teams right through to the first teams, men and women, they all have to go past this statue of this great Ghanaian, Arthur Wharton, at St George's Park. He's not there. This statue that stands 16 foot tall is not a gimmick. It is a reminder, a physical testament of the need to embrace culture and diversity towards equality for all. It's the perfect symbol. You know, when I met with President Mahama, the president of Ghana, and I gave a talk, you know, for, on his behalf to a delegate down at uh, the High Commission in London, it was no coincidence that when I looked around that room, there were some very surprised uh, responses to hearing the story of Arthur. They had no idea, these great Ghanaians, that perhaps the greatest sporting icon of all time was of Ghanaian origin. And you think, wow, you should know that because he's the perfect symbol and icon to raise the aspirations of not just, you know, of people in Ghana who wish to pursue sports. Yeah. But not just in Ghana. When you actually look at Arthur Wharton's life story, it is extremely compelling. It's very telling. It's a very deep story. And it can reach out to all people regardless of colour. That is the legacy of Arthur Wharton and for my money Ghana really needs to pick up on that and it needs to understand that they have just this wonderful, you know, I think one of your questions is going to be about role models Yeah, yeah. and he is the ideal role model. So what I would say is, you know, if you can't see it, you can't believe you can be it, right? That's right. So you need to see black people in places of power and authority and achieving things in order to say, oh, they look like me. If he can do it, I can do it. Well, in swimming, you don't have those role models because we don't see black people swimming. So black people have got nothing to look up to. Yep. Very true. Very true. You know, if we can, if we can find a world champion swimmer, then wow, fantastic. Because people will start to swim and think, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. I can it. do it. I mean, you look at the empowerment of some people in America, particularly in the black community, who have aspired and been motivated to go into politics because of Barack Obama. I mean, that's fantastic. And in years to come, that will shine through, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. It touch the hearts and minds of an entire generation. And it's what we're saying here today, isn't it? That in order to overcome these barriers and um, stereotypes of black people can't swim, 
we need to find role models who can and how um, if they want to aspire to achieve things in swimming but the primary thing isn't achieving medals and olympics it's being able to save your life very important and well said you hit the nail on the head so tell, tell us about what you what um, what's the future of um, the campaign the Arthur Wharton Foundation and where are you, where are you taking it next um, and, and because we need I only just heard about it um, recently right. and then when I started talking to you and, and, I, and, I, and I kick myself I'm, I'm Ghanaian I should have known about this yes you know right. but it's not your fault it's the fault of it's, it's my fault it's the fault of society where it hasn't permeated enough I mean yes we've got some global reach now and you know, yes, there's been lots of coverage about it, a lot more people now. But you're the perfect example, Ed, of, of showing us just how far we have to go. Because the beginning of this campaign was always, and, and this answers in a sense the question that you're asking me now, the objection, the objective of the campaign was always to see how many people globally we could reach that could learn the name Arthur Wharton and understood what he represents, particularly within the black community, because it is the beginning of all sports, and it's one guy. If you think of rugby, we've just watched the World Cup, and we've just seen the first black captain winning a World Cup. The original pioneer in rugby is Arthur Wharton from Ghana. You look at this new sports cycling team that now challenges in the Tour de France and things like this, it's an all-black team, yeah? It all began with Arthur Wharton. We look at these great black uh, uh, professional cricket players today, and you look back, you have to go back to Arthur Wharton. And then when we look at Usain Bolt today, and the reason we reached out to Usain Bolt, there's a very good link there, which I'll come to in a second. But every black athlete, certainly in sprinting, it goes back to Arthur Wharton the world's first. Without Arthur Wharton, there is no Usain Bolt. And then, of course, we look at football and we look at the advent of all the players coming in and it all goes back to Arthur Wharton as a black, you know, uh, professional footballer. Before Arthur Wharton, you had a, a black captain of Scotland 11 years before Arthur, but it wasn't a professional game then. But Scotland had a black captain. Their first ever captain was black, Andrew Watson. And we still don't see black players playing for Scotland. Quite, quite bizarre. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we look at it in, t in the way I'm presenting it to you, Ed, it, it's, we go back to that very beginning and we say that, you know, he was the perfect, in a sense, uh, catalyst and role model for everything that followed for black people in all of the sports that I've mentioned. There was one particular day where this Ghanaian Arthur Wharton turned up at um, a sporting event. And the record for throwing the cricket, I don't know about you, but when I was at school growing up, one of the school sports day events was throwing the cricket ball. Went on in Victorian England, you know, and Arthur Wharton was at an event one day. And the, the, the record for throwing the cricket ball was something like, if I remember rightly, about 69 metres. Uh, yards as it was then. Anyway, Arthur was watching and he said, oh, do you mind if I have a go? And uh, I suppose they had a little chuckle and thought, yeah, yeah, go on, have a go. So he, he got the ball and he threw it over 100 yards. Absolutely annihilated the competition. 
<laughs> what wow. a character, Ed. What a role model. <coughs> Absolutely. I mean, he died a terrible death. He died in a... You know, he came from a very esteemed family in Ghana. You know, he wasn't... Um, essentially, his father was a minister, a uh, Methodist uh, minister, uh, Scottish heritage, born on the island of Grenada in the Caribbean. He went to Ghana to further his Methodist preachings and he met a fancy princess, Annie Agrivia. And um, they married and Arthur was born in Ghana and that's, you know, Arthur's roots. But we're talking about 1865 he was born, Ed. 1865 was the year of the abolition of slavery in America. Now, if you think that Arthur Wharton was born then, you think of the timeline, and you think that Arthur Wharton also served in the in the Home Guard in the First World War. We have this wonderful picture of Arthur in his uniform, you know. This man was committed to the community. And when anyone says to me, what is the one thing um, that Arthur Wharton did that really, you know, inspires you? Well, it's none of the sporting achievements, Ed. It's the, it's the fact that in Victorian England, in a very bleak existence when it was the industrial revolution when it was very cold bleak dark place to live this young man arthur wharton played seven games of football in 10 days for charity to feed the poor in the face of his own adversity now that's the kind of humanitarian spirit that we all need today and he set that example and he used his status as a an athlete to do that but that wasn't with the light little footballs that you play today. This was with the cannonball. You know, it was like a rock-hard leather football that when it got wet, it was like a cannonball. And he played seven games in ten days. And not only that, but he played those seven games predominantly in goal as a goalkeeper, which is what how he made his name. But you see, putting the fastest man in the world in goal it's a bit of a mistake for any team, I'm sure you'd agree. Yeah. <laughs> but Arthur used to run out and score two or three goals at a time because nobody could catch him. Going back to the Usain Bolt, Arthur Wharton link, what you have to remember is there's only two people in history who's ever been a black professional footballer and the fastest man on the planet. And that is Usain Bolt when he turned professional last year, remember? Mm-hmm. Played a few games for a few teams. And he's the current world record holder. So now Usain Bolt has paid tribute and continues to pay tribute to this great guy named Arthur Warren, who without Usain Bolt wouldn't exist because history would have taken a different course, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, they're the only two people in history who have that synergy. You know, it's just Usain Bolt and Arthur Warren. Isn't that great? Thank you very, very much. It's been amazing. It's been educational. Like I say, thank you very, very much for talking so passionately about this. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It really has been a pleasure. You're a star. Thank you very much, sir.